0: The deepest reason for our suffering is that we have to let go. We have to cut loose from the moorings of the past in order to launch, like a ship is launched, on the ocean of the future. And this can be done only if the real experience of the cross, the glorious light experience of the cross, is alive in us. It shines in the darkness until suddenly the darkness is gone. Only the light is left.
1: Welcome to psychology on the cross. In this episode, I am joined by Sarah Larkin to discuss the life and work of Fritz Kunkel. Sarah has a background in religious studies and a master in pastoral psychology. She is a poet and have also created an online archive of Kunkel's writings, accessible on fritzkunkel.com. Fritz Kunkel was a giant in psychology in the 1920s and 30s, Corresponded with Jung and studied under Adler. He lived and worked in Berlin, but emigrated to California in 1939. And he developed a religiously informed depth psychology that he named We Psychology. Kuhnke's psychology differs from Jung's in its broader emphasis on the concept of individuation and an emphasis on the collective dimension. He also corrects Jung on matters related to evil. Here is our conversation. I'm very happy to have this conversation with you to 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 learn, hopefully for me and also the, the audience listening to the podcast, a little bit more about this man Fritz Kunkel. But before digging into him, I am curious about yourself and if you could say a few words about you and maybe also how you came in contact with Fritz Kunkel.
0: Yeah, well, thank you for the opportunity to share. It's 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 wonderful. I think there is a growing interest in Fritz Kunkel. And through my website, I do have like a handful of people who are contacting me. And some people with a personal relationship to Kunkel as well who remember him. He died in 1956. So, yeah, he's a little bit passing into history. But I think there is a remnant of people out there still interested in him. And my past to Kunkel, it's interesting. When I was thinking about this question, how did I arrive to knowing about Fritz Kunkel? I was in my early 20s and I had just become a Christian. I hadn't been brought up in a Christian household at all. But I became a Christian in my early 20s. And I began to read books. And one of the books that I read was John Sanford's mother. And she was called Agnes Sanford. And John Sanford's mother and father were both involved in ministry, in Christian ministry. And his father wrote one book called God's Healing Power. And he was a minister. And he came from a long line of ministers. But his mother absolutely fascinated me. And she wrote books about the ministry of the spirit, and she's considered to be one of the pioneers of the Christian inner healing movement. And she had this very distinctive aspect of that called the healing of memories. And so I read all the books by Agnes Sanford that I could find, and and then a whole load of other books around the topic of Christian healing, Christian inner healing, as it was called then. And and it kind of led me on a on a on a particular path. The interesting thing about Agnes Sanford is that she also had a remarkable healing ministry that was praying for people to be healed of physical diseases and seeing remarkable miracles. So and she's not a Pentecostal, she's not a charismatic or a Pentecostal as we would understand them today. She was very much quite traditional and a Presbyterian, which is what John Sanford became. He became a Presbyterian minister as well. And I was so fascinated by Agnes Sanford that I used to read autobiography once a year for many years. It's called Sealed Orders. And and so it was reading Agnes Sanford that led me to read John Sanford. And it was through John Sanford that I discovered Kunkel. So that's my path, my path to Kunkel. I think quite a few people now might find Kunkel through John Sanford and also Robert Johnson who's the other very well known Jungian analyst. Because in um Robert Robert Sanford's no, sorry, Robert Johnson's autobiography, I think it's called Balancing Heaven and Earth, there's a whole chapter on how Fritz Kunkel saved his life. And I know as well, it's very similar to John Sanford's story that they both knew Kunkel and they both had analysis with him in their early twenties. So it's it's very good that there is a kind of a record of that in terms of both John Sanford and Robert Johnson's biographies. Mm. So that's how I came to Kunkel. And just to say, I say this is a bit of a disclaimer, but I'm not a psychologist and I haven't studied psychology. I did religious studies as a degree and I did pastoral theology as my master's. Mm. And I love poetry and I write poetry and I've had some poetry published. And I've led many retreats and creative writing workshops. Using poetry to help people connect with themselves, and I'm I'm also responsible for a small congregation of a Christian church in in North London. So that's a little
1: bit about yeah about me. And so the, so so, who who was this man Kunkel? Can you give a little bit of a background? Because I think he's much of an unknown even to the listeners to this of this podcast. Mm. Mm.
0: I find it helpful to think about Kunkel as a contemporary of Freud, Adler, and Jung. And I kind of have a picture in my mind, really, of the three of them, the three kind of, I suppose you could say, fathers of modern psychology as a kind of triangle. And I think that Kunkel fills in something and builds on the insights of those three. And I think Kunkel kind of squares the circle and creates more possibilities in that square than there is in the triangle. I don't think Kunkel ever intended to start a new movement or a standalone psychology, I think he integrates the insights of those of those three. And I might say a little bit more about that later if you're interested, Mm -hmm. but they were all contemporary. I think if you want to kind of place Kunkel in his historical context, Freud was 33 years old when Kunkel was born. And so Freud was the oldest, then you have Adler, then you have Jung and then you have Kunkel. And that age difference there from Freud to Kunkel is just 33 years. So they all lived at the same time. And I find that very, very helpful to, to place him in the kind of historical context, kind of before actually looking at his his biography, because they were all around at the same time and they all would have interacted, if not in person, with each other by letter and through books and through, you know, ideas. But in terms of his, his biography, he was he was born in 1889 in what was then Brandenburg, which is now part of Poland, but then it would have been part of, of Germany. And he came from a well-off family. I think he had lots of time when he was young. He was quite lonely until his younger brother was born. So I think he spent quite a bit of time alone and in nature. And and it was quite a well-off family. It was quite a privileged family, I understand. But in he trained as a as a medic, as a doctor. And so that was what he intended to become, was a medical doctor. And then in the First World War, something terrible happened to him. He was very badly injured and he lost his his arm. I think it was his left arm. And so he was a one-armed person for the rest of his life. And he realized that he couldn't practice as a medical doctor. So he retrained then as a psychologist. But the experience of, of being on the battlefield and lying there and having a very serious injury... He had, a, I suppose, what you could say, a spiritual experience. He, he felt the tangible love of God in that terrible place of death and destruction. And he felt as well, from what I've read, a kind of an interconnectedness of all things. And, and I personally think that that was a very significant foundational experience in the development of his, what is known to be we, we psychology. That experience of the love of God and the fact that there is a connectedness in all of creation. So, yeah, that was a defining moment in his life. He retrained as a psychologist and he did that in Vienna and he was directly with Adler when he did that. So initially he was, yeah, a practitioner of Adler's psychotherapy. And then he went to Berlin to practice to practice that. In the 1920s, he, he married. And I guess this, oh, sorry, in the 1920s, he also lost his inheritance. So there's another loss there. His inheritance got wiped out. I think there was what they call hyperinflation in Germany at the time. So he lost his inheritance. He got married and had three children, but his wife died quite young. They were married for 12 years, had three children, and then she died. And she was a co-worker, really, with with with, with Kunkel. Together, they set up an Adler's yeah, Institute in Berlin. So, yeah, so there's another loss there. He did marry again. And have two more children and his ideas were becoming very popular then in the 20s and 30s as he began to work and develop or already build on some of the insights of of adler in particular and he was invited to go to america twice in in the 1930s and the second invite was in 1939 and then the the second world war broke out so he has a wife and five five children now What one of the children actually came to America in 1938 but the rest of his family stayed yeah in Europe and the war broke out so he was separated from them for the whole duration of the war and that must have been I can't imagine you know the feelings of uncertainty and yeah so he was in America then and he stayed in America and his wife Elizabeth and yeah the children joined him in 1947 and then he died in 1956. So it's a relatively short period that he's yeah he's living and working in America in California particularly, and giving mm-hmm. lectures.
1: And how was his reception in, in in the U.S.? Do we know anything about that? Part?
0: Yeah, I think it was it was it was very good. And he had a lot to do with the churches. I do know from speaking to his daughter that he never formally went to church, so he's not a traditional christian in that sense but he had a very strong relationship with lots of clergy and he had a very strong Mm. desire to give more psychological training to clergy to help people in a pastoral context and he had an idea as well to set up an institute to do that the institute of religious psychology but it didn't really take off in the sense that he died quite suddenly and Mm -hmm. quite early
1: what was he born and raised a christian
0: A Lutheran, yeah. But he had quite a distrust of the institutional church Mm. and some of the power dynamics within it. So he never kind of threw his lot in, you could say, with with going to church. But he clearly based his spirituality on Christianity Mm. in terms of his meditation and the way that he sought to psychologically interpret the scriptures and the Bible. And I think there's quite a big part of his work that's that's not been brought forth on that. He did write a book, which is a psychological interpretation of the Gospel of Matthew. But I think he intended to do a lot more than that. He was working on a psychological interpretation of the life and letters of Paul when he died. That was going to be his greatest work. And it was also yeah, wrapped up
1: with a book that was going to be called The Call to the Future. So when you place these four thinkers next to each other, like that, what, what would you say, what was it that, you know, Duncan specifically brought into this, this field of emerging psychologies? I
0: think what he brings, I mean, it's called We Psychology. And it's a very serious, targeted focus on ego and egocentricity and overcoming it. And the only way, he said, to overcome it is through we-ness or having we experiences. So it's a way to understand your egocentricity, which we all suffer from one way or another. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, And we inherit things, and there are our own things that cause us to be egocentric. But I think more than anyone else in that triangle, you could say, he really took the power of the ego very, very seriously. And I think he would say as well, or my understanding certainly is that the ego is the psychological sort of, what would you say, equivalent of evil. So he took the ego and the power of the ego very seriously and helps us, I think, to understand what our egocentricity is, how it manifests in different ways, and then the whole emphasis on we and relationship in order to, yeah, overcome.
1: Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's what that's what he brings. E- egocentricity, I mean, it's a word we use today, but I'm wondering, you know, mm. he used that word for describing, you know, some of the complications that happens in human development or in personal development that we become egocentric. Could you say a little bit more about his use of that word egocentricity mm. or how to understand that today?
0: Yeah, I think he, he defines egocentricity as wanting happiness despite the welfare of others. I know that that is one way that he has defined egocentricity. And he goes on to identify there are four types and we all kind of maybe lean towards one or another or go between them. But he said there are two kind of extroverted types, which is the star, the one that wants attention, and the Nero, which is the one who wants power. And then there are two kind of more passive types, you could say. He called it the clinging vine, the one who is kind of a victim and doesn't want to take responsibility or wants other people to do things for them. The clinging vine. And what's the other one? The turtle, the -hmm. one who withdraws and doesn't want to take responsibility at all. So he kind of identifies four types of of egocentricity. And he talks about an axis of the plus 100 and the minus 100. (laughs) And the plus 100 is kind of our ego ideal, really. And say, for example, say if, yeah, to be loved is my plus one hundred. He said you can almost, with mathematical precision, m- map your minus one hundred. Then, which is rejection. You know, if my greatest desire is to be loved, then my deepest fear will be rejection. But it's all on that ego axis, and the only way that we can circumvent that is with with we experiences. But it, in some ways, it's inevitable that we will go down to the minus one hundred. Because what we greatly fear will come upon us. And so Mm -hmm. we're kind of driven, he says, to the doghouse. But in the experience of being in the minus 100 in the doghouse, we will find that there is our salvation. (laughs) Because the only way truly up in terms of connecting with our true self and with God is through going down to the lowest place. So it's like you go down in order to properly go up Mm -hmm. in a way that is not egotistical and in a way that is not driven by any ego ideal or the corresponding greatest fear to that. But the way that he talks about it as well is very interesting because this is the very first book that I ever read by Kunkel and it is so accessible and it is so written for the lay person and there's line drawings and there's reflection questions at the end of each chapter and it's written for young people. And that's the book that I read when I first found Kunkel. And I'm very glad it was that book because I think some of his other books are written not for that audience and they're harder to understand. And there's also a kind of maybe what you could say datedness to some of his writing. He was that writing... Book, the title of that book was? is My Dear Ego.
1: My Dear Ego.
0: It's called My Dear Ego, yeah. And it, it, the, the subline or the, it is, it is a look in the mirror.
1: A look in the mirror. Okay. Yeah,
0: my dear ego, a look in the mirror. So if anybody wants to know where to start with Kunkel, I would very much recommend starting with my dear ego because it is so accessible. And the way that he breaks down his ideas and talks about the fundamentals of we psychology, it's relatively easy to grasp. Mm. But, but And it's true depth psychology as well. It's true true depth psychology. So it's it's no mean feat, I think, to convey those ideas in very imaginative ways with imaginative language with pictures you know those pictures of egocentricity in terms of the types <laughs> so, they so. do really help you to, to to remember because there's pictures of a star and a turtle and you know mm-hmm.
1: clinging yes. vine. And some people have said, or I think even some puts have that egocentricity, you could sort of use the word narcissist today. Would you say so as well? Is it the same thing?
0: I think so. I think there's uh, there's some very, yeah, definitely strong relationship between narcissism. Because I think if you understand narcissism as a kind of the defense of the ego. So I know in some of the pictures that I've seen that that, that Kunkel have done, you've got the kind of the smaller circle of the ego within the larger circle of the self. And what happens in egocentricity is that your ego sort of is walled, really, that the, the defense around it cuts, cuts itself off from the true self and the right relationship that it should be in to your true self. So actually, I think I, I, think I understand, or the little bit I understand about narcissism is that it is, an, it is a defense mechanism that puts you out of touch with your true self and therefore puts you out of touch with, Yeah other people as well and causes you to act very selfishly, which is what the ego does. Because the ego at all costs wants to maintain its position of power.
1: Hmm. And and the way from sort of me to we or from ego to a more we centered perspective or of life or a way of living life, is that through analysis or is that through sort of making the unconscious, conscious or I mean, what about that process of the, um yeah, of, of me to we?
0: Interesting. That's an interesting question. I think I think analysis helps. I, I mean, obviously, Kunker wasn't an an analyst, you know, an analyst, and, and he's not against it at all. But I think he would see the process as not purely psychological. So I think he has a broader definition than Jung would have of how you individuate, you know, so if I think of individuation in sort of the broadest possible terms, you could say transformation. How does transformation happen? You know, And I think for Kunkel, it's about understanding the ego and the power of the ego and even the evil of the ego. And then, yeah, um, in, in, in sort of crisis, in the crisis that you will inevitably have, <laughs> then sort of coming up from that minus 100 in, in terms of the doghouse, embracing learning and what you're understanding about yourself there's a tremendous release of power and so when the ego kind of breaks down and those ego defenses are not around the ego then you discover that you have a self and you have enormous potential within that self and and i think because he was religious in the sense that he believed in a transcendent god in the sense that God is outside of the human person. I think with Jung, my understanding is that kind of the self is the archetype of God. So there's very little or nothing about transcendence in in Jungian psychology. It's like the knowledge of God is encapsulated within the self. With Kunkel, that's quite different because there is a God that exists outside of you and he created you and there's a connection within you. But... It's like transcendence and imminence with, with Kunkel. So I think, yeah, getting in touch with, your, with yourself in that way, your true centre, your true self, opens up the possibility of then being in touch with God. And then you have a flow of creative life. And I think the means, you see, it's an interesting question there about analysis, about how it happens. Because I think, yeah, means and ends, is quite a philosophical thing in a way. But Kunkel talks a lot about means and end. And he even goes as far as to say that the end, in terms of his psychology, is not necessarily healing. It's maturity.
1: Mm.
0: It's what it is to grow up. And it's about the development of your character. So, yeah, it's not self-actualization or self-realization. It's something quite quite different. And the means to get there in terms of that maturity is, is prayer. Prayer, and he calls it confessional meditation, a particular kind of prayer. And he said prayer, fasting, and dream analysis is how you do it. Those three things. And that is quite, quite different, I think, to what Jung would what Jung would say in terms of the process of individuation.
1: Well, he wouldn't bring fasting in, maybe. No, I don't think but, so. <laughs> but a dream analysis he would absolutely subscribe yes, to, yeah, and uh, and confessional meditation,
0: I suppose, is being before God, and yeah. uh, expressing your emotions to Him. Yeah, and we and we you... could call that confession. I mean, you could call that in yeah, in terms of the Christian.
1: Yeah, I don't think Jung himself would would definitely turn to prayer as I have understood him. But I think if he would meet or have met a religious person or someone maybe who lost faith, that pray, I think he would see the value of the psychological value and emotional value mm. of prayer for someone who's yeah. a, who has who has faith. But yeah, yeah I am. You know, I. I understand, I'm still with that image that you presented of putting Funker in there and, you know, him bringing, you know, his focus on the we and on the we mm-hmm. experience that is that is rather unique. I mean, mm-hmm. of the four, I mean, Jung is very suspicious of the group. It's very suspicious of the we, of the collective. Freud also, I mean, you know, and Adler, I, I would think, I'm, I'm not sure with Adler, I'm not so well-read on him, but I, I'm thinking, you know, in that time where they were all coexisting in, in Europe, there, there was terrible we experiences actually happening in Europe, if i you know, be a bit provocative here, but just to say that there was a lot of we psychology, you know, with national socialism trying to bring people together in a sense of, oh, and, you know, we know what can happen in a group. And I think rightly so, you know, Freud and Jung were quite skeptical and critical. I understand that it's a very complex question, but, but I'm wondering still, what is this we experience because mm. I, I love that and I feel like it, it makes so much sense we speak so much about peak experiences and in our time yeah. that we experiences but yeah also you're seeing the sort of awful you know the shadow side let's say of, of, yeah. of the we when it comes together did he sort of uh, de- define farther what is the we experience we know that he had one in a very you know dramatic sense when he was in the first world war and, and so on the soldiers around him and and being wounded like that?
0: I think, gosh, it is. Yeah, like you say, it's a very, it's a very layered, isn't it? It's a very layered question. I know, first of all, to say, just because it comes into my mind, that he does talk about the sham we. Sorry, the what? The sham, he calls it a sham. Yeah, a sham we, which is like a false, a false we. Mm. And when the idol replaces the true we. So he is aware, I think, and conscious of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, that there is a false dark side, yeah, that stops the process happening or scuppers the process from from happening. But in terms of, I know this might sound a bit simplistic, but it's about sharing. So it's kind of like different to being altruistic, where you kind of just kind of give something away. He gives a very rudimentary example with an apple, that there's a group of people who are very hungry and if you, you know, gave the apple, yeah, to to one person, you know, you're d- you're doing something quite altruistic. But if you kind of divide it up into eight pieces, <laughs> mm. you sort of mean that would be like a a we a we experience. Mm. So it's it's kind of different to to altruism, and it's the opposite of of selfishness, I guess you could say. And it's it also corresponds, I think, with the Christian truth. Mm. And, and I guess it's a paradox that. What Jesus said is that you 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 only find your life by giving it away, giving a, giving it up. So it's that principle, yeah, that principle there at work. I think I don't know if that answers the question
1: no, very, no, very well. Yeah. And
0: also, I would also say on the kind of theistic theological side that God is a Trinity and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you have a set of relationships within God Himself. You have a we within god i mean that's a whole other a whole other thing that you could spend a lot of time thinking about so there is a we in god and so when we are with each other and in relationship we are somehow reflecting that image of god that is within himself so we can receive and understand more of god through each other in as much as we're in the we in we-ness or the we experience Mm -hmm. So I think there is that level as well, certainly in my reading of Kunkel,
1: that's there. Yes. I feel like you're already helping us to move into this question of, of the foundation and, and Christianity's role within the, the theory building, if I can say so, of Kunkel and within his ideas. You said something yeah, really important here around the, the and we can look at it theologically, but, but you know, having read... Not as some as much as I would have liked to, but but some. I mean, it is clear like how often and how much he uses somehow uses connects back to scripture for for getting his point through, and in a very seamless way, he seems to sort of weave between psychological language and and, and scripture. Or what? Could you say something about yeah Christianity's role as a if it is a foundation in his theory, but.
0: Yes. Sorry, I'm pausing because, yeah, again, it's one of those questions that, yeah, there are different ways to look at it and answer it. But I think I think, ultimately, if we're talking about Christianity, we have to look at the person of Christ. and And I think the person of Christ, even if we're just looking at it sort of on that psychological level, is... Is the perfect person, as it were, but the perfect person in the sense of achieving balance and integration. So, so I think, yeah, what what you can have quite apart from looking at the Bible and the stories in the Bible, and like what you could reflect in terms of Kunkel's particular brand of psychology, and that's certainly something that he does do. He does do a comp- almost complete rendering of of the scriptures in a in a psychological way. Which is absolutely, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating and should be absolutely fascinating to anybody who professes to be a Christian, I have to say, because it's a whole different dimension and a different level in, in some ways, yeah, of, of looking looking at something. Because he still absolutely stays a, a psychologist, you know, it's like he doesn't kind of step over <laughs> into being a theologian, even though he clearly meditated on on, on, on the scriptures a lot. But I think, yeah, in in terms of Christianity to start with and have as the most important thing, the person of Christ, understanding that that Christ is fully man and fully God if we accept the, the Christian Orthodox position and see, yeah, see that person as a kind of a pattern, you know, the patterned life, you could say. So he balances all the opposites within within himself and he shows us how to do that. Even even in like loving your enemies and forgiving your enemies you know that would be a way of thinking about balancing the opposites oh,
1: sorry so, how um, would you think about this that, that, that i find that interesting yeah. how do you know how Kunke would interpret that statement or love your enemies or sorry how Kunkel how would yeah how how, how, can um, one how, how you, how you would do that yeah, yeah, yeah. Or,
0: it would be through forgiveness it would be through forgiving them yeah, and understanding that hate is the inner equivalent of murder,
1: forgiving them, but also like I guess it would also mean somehow working on your own hate, or that it also has a inner dimension, a psychological dimension that you have to withdraw a projection of sort. Yeah, or that absolutely. Have, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Mm.
1: Yeah.
0: And, and also not, I would say that you know Jesus when we look at when we look at Jesus how he balances really or integrates the the masculine and the feminine I think that's a very interesting thing because he was very compassionate and caring and nurturing but he was also very strong and authoritative you know and had yeah what you could cast as you know feminine and masculine strength and how he balances those within himself is another way that you can look at Jesus Oh. In terms of integrating and balancing opposites and integrating those things that are often separated and split off within us oh. yeah so I think the person of Christ there is is very yeah very foundational, important or front and center, and then I think as well the cross is is also the other aspect because obviously that was the work of Christ which was to go to the cross and and what that shows us and what that reveals to us, even in a psychological way. I know, obviously, in the Christian framework, Jesus is bearing the sins of the world, and it's a place for evil and darkness to go, and to be born away to give us the opportunity of new life. Because beyond the cross, there's resurrection. So, so the the meaning of the cross, or the or the yeah, what the cross can show us and teach us, is something as well that that Kunkel thought about and did write about. I've got an essay I don't know if you've seen it the significance of the cross on I've seen it yeah, I've seen I've it, seen yeah. it on the yeah that isn't available anywhere else it's hmm. just on my on my website I was given permission to to put it up but I read it I say it every now and again but every time I read Kunkel, it's almost like I'm I'm reading him for the first time <laughs> I don't know <laughs> Because I find it so so deep, and working on mm-hmm. on different levels, and I always get something different out of it. Yeah, the more the more I read, the more I read Kunkel. But the one thing that he says about the cross there is that the deepest reason for our suffering is that we have to let go. Which, yeah, maybe it's, would you give me the yeah, yeah pleasure of reading? I've got a quote from that here, and maybe this would say it much better than than I can. It, this, the, these are Cook's own words on the significance of the cross this is how the cross of Jesus the experience of Jesus can help us today for whatever reason we are crucified nailed to our own cross because of our own sins, our own faults because of our parents' sins or the sins of a particular social group it does not matter the deepest reason for our suffering is that we have to let go we have to cut loose from the moorings of the past in order to launch like a ship is launched on the ocean of the future and this can be done only if the real experience of the cross, the glorious light experience of the cross is alive in us. It shines in the darkness until suddenly the darkness is gone. Only the light is left. So I think that's a lovely
1: That is lovely. That is from that essay, from that.
0: Yeah, that's from his conclusion, really. And and I think it to me it speaks again of that minus one hundred, that doghouse experience that if we can embrace our suffering and if we can kind of let it go, (laughs) and in that is the letting go of projections as well, we can move through it and we can learn from it and we can be free of the tyranny of our ego. We can get in touch more with our true self and there we find God, you know, and there we find not just God, but we find divine assistance. Kunkel talked about this quite a lot, that you find God's help and you can be divinely inspired and divinely guided. So I think that's, yeah, a lovely a lovely aspect of what you could call, I guess, and what he called his psychology, which was religious, religious psychology. And I think in terms of that triangle, that's what you don't have in that triangle. And when it becomes the square with we psychology, there you have the potential of a religious psychology, whether that's the right term or the right word.
1: You spoke about Christ, and you start by putting Christ at the center also of his psychology or Jesus. And I wondered about that because a the theme that Jung and also in this podcast that we have come back to again and again is the question of Im- imitatio Christi. This was something, you know, imitation of Christ was something that Jung was very interested in this concept or this idea or this tradition. But Bajum was also very critical because he saw there's a risk with us identifying with Christ or and therefore actually losing our own personalities. And yeah, we try to be too good or too ideal, or you know, we we see the shadow side of a Christian often, you yeah? like we're always there for everyone else, but no boundaries and no actually personal inner life, it's just devotion to Christ. But it can be also the the expense of personality development and psychological development in, in Jung's view. So he was quite, uh, his rendering of imitation of Christ was that in order to follow, in order to follow Christ, you actually have to sort of break in a way with Christ. You couldn't, you shouldn't identify with that pattern. You need to live your life as truthfully or as authentically or as uh, very truthfully in front of God as, as Christ did, but not live the life of Christ. That there's a problem at times with literal identification or imitations of the perfect man. Jung also put Christ at the center and like but he, he then said that Christ is in Jung's view I don't fully agree with him but that Christ is sort of an, an it's, it's not a, it, it, it's, it's a picture of the self but it's lacking in Jung's view. it's lacking sort of a shadow it's lacking you know elements that you know are a part of our human nature and again that there can be big risks in identifying with the Christ image. Because we are becoming yeah, behaving like Christ like, but we're hiding our because Mm. or our uh, So I was thinking about that. First of all, if you would say imitating Christ is what he what he refers to, or if it's uh, if it's a little bit different, putting Christ at the center of of Kunkel's psychology.
0: Mm. Yeah, well that's a very yeah, very interesting reflection. I think I I've never seen or read Kunkel talk about imitating Christ i've i've have much more seen jesus talked about as kind of the highest example of what it is to be a human person because if it's true that the son of god and the son of man coexist you know then that is what we would what we would find it would be the perfect example or the model and he shows us what to do he shows us how to be you know and and i mean the scriptures are full of advice you could say, advice. I think what you're saying, though, is very, very important in in the sense of it's not just about believing a set of ideas or dogmas. We have to embrace kind of the totality of what Jesus represents. And that will cause a kind of an inner disturbance or an inner eruption of our egoism, of our ego images, our ego ideals, etc. Because the living God wants us to live and have Relationship with ourselves and with others, and with who He is, or who He's revealed Himself to be. So, I think it's quite a different, yeah, it's quite a different thing because once you go on that journey, what I think Kunkel says is that you receive the Spirit to help you, the Holy Spirit, and that's the kind of the experience of God in our lives, which is both inner and outer. So, I think, yeah, I think, yeah, gosh, I, Lovely to have hours to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, what 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 you just just put there because because healing in it because I think that's really what I started with in some ways thinking about Agnes Sanford and why mm-hmm. I was so fascinated <laughs> by by her writings because I'd never come across anything like it you know before talking about the role of the spirit the work of the spirit in inner healing in healing our woundedness healing our memories particularly she talked about that and how that yeah how that can happen. So I think, yeah, it's 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 a very important thing, yeah, because an unintegrated Christian can be the worst of all, you know.
1: Mm. Yeah. In terms no. of in
0: terms of damaging, in terms of yeah, absolutely. Of, of, yeah, I, I've got something here. It's a little leaflet about the the adv- the ideas that Kunkel had for the advancement of religious psychology. He wanted to create a foundation for it. And there's a little bit of blurb, I was just reading this before. He, he says the religious counsellor considers his clinical work as an integral part of his religion. Now that's a very interesting thing to say, I think. <laughs> he believes that his assistance to his clients can be and ought to be a means to their spiritual growth. He can draw no line between his practice of psychology and his practice of religion. Therefore, he attaches great importance to the conflicts and crises of emotional maladjustment, neurosis, and even psychosis. He counts them among the most significant opportunities offered by life for the discovery and understanding of our
1: spiritual destiny. Well, I think we were already touching upon this next question when we spoke about the invitation of Christ or like just the general Christ's role in Kuntler's psychology and then just added a bit of Jung's view on Christ as both a, a potential and the perfect man, he would definitely agree, but also the sort of dangers in Jung's view of just identifying with the good or identifying with the light and the, with the bright side of that. Although, of course, you know, the Christ story has as much darkness as as brightness, but I, I, there is one thing—a theme that Jung was very strongly negative around—and that he sort of researched a little bit in my conversations with others. And that has to do with the concept of privatio boni, or the the question of evil. Jung had some provocative reflections and ideas. He had difficulties in coming to terms with this idea of a God that was. All good or all love in Jung's world, he he saw. Yeah, he tried to compensate for that image in a way by, I guess, emphasizing you know all the other aspects of 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 God. And I know that when it comes to the privatio boni, the absence of good, I'm I'm wondering about. I know that Kukla wrote about it. I don't know if you have digged into that in any way, but how Kukla differs from Jung's view in this thinking?
0: Yes. Well, I think, well, first of all, I would say that I think John Sanford has done an absolutely incredible job at doing what you've just said there in terms of his, I guess it's, yeah, his analysis of the difference between Jung and Kunkel and particularly around the concept of evil. I think he's articulated it absolutely masterfully. And there's a YouTube clip of him talking about it, uh, which I think you've used in a previous podcast, I think. And and also in the selected writings of Kunkel, which is like the textbook really or the handbook or the only book really that I have come across that yeah, that seeks to draw out the differences between Kunkel and Jung. He talks about it there quite extensively, I would say. So I think yeah, I think I think John Sandford is really key and nobody could do it better than him <laughs> in some ways. But I know from what I've understood from listening to John Sanford, because actually directly out of Kunkel's writings, I haven't picked up too much overtly about what you're saying. I think there's quite a lot that's implied and quite a lot that we could infer and say about the subject of what Kunkel thought about evil. He definitely thought that the ego is the psychological equivalent of evil. And and it's it's to be taken very, very seriously. And he does not locate evil in the self, which is what I think Jung did. And I think Kunkel saw the self as much more, I say the word pure, I don't know if that's the right word, but sort of good in itself, as it were, because there is the creative potential for your life, you know, in terms of the right relationship between the self and the ego and there, outside of that, the transcendent God that you can kind of be in touch with and draw from. So so I think there are some very deep differences. And, and this idea, I think it goes back, it goes further back, I think, and I think this is quite foundational in some ways or quite important in, in really understanding that Jung didn't really see or at least acknowledge in his psychology a transcendent God. It's like a one-tier system, you know, instead of a theistic system, which is like a two-tier system, that God God created the world, but he's outside of the world as opposed to God created the world and he's just within the world, so that I can worship a tree and call it God, and that's fine. And that's a monist view, you know? But actually, a Christian view is a theist view, is that, okay, God made the tree, <laughs> and the tree is a good part of God's creation, but actually he is separate from that tree. And that tree might reflect to me some of the truth of God, but it is not God. So I think that's a kind of a theological stroke philosophical thing to explore with, with this question of evil, because it kind of is the overarching question for me anyway. So I know that, that John Sanford said, if you don't see that evil resides in the egocentric deviations of the ego, you are bound to project it into the self instead. And I think that's what, mm. that's what Jung did. So he had to reconcile good and evil within God stroke the self and not see any separation from that. But I think what Kunkel did was to separate out.
1: Well, I think the way that Jung tried to public balance or walk that line was somehow that he he would not say that he has anything to say. I think he would, he cannot say anything about if there's a transcendent God or not, but Mm. he would say that's outside of his psychology. Of course, he always transgressed and went in and between, but he wouldn't, I think, locate God inside the man, actually. He would locate, there's mm-hmm. probably as current, the, the God image, the imago Dei as being, you know, in the self is given from God. But mm-hmm. uh, he would not, not say that like God is a part of man or God is an mm-hmm. internal process. That's something that one often hears from Freudians also sort of criticizing mm-hmm. Jung for sort of bringing it all into some mm-hmm. mysticism, which I think is a little bit of a misunderstanding. I'm not saying that you're saying that, but there's this. Mm-hmm. Balance that, you know that Jung is thus more or less successful at different times of his life in, in trying to to come to terms with that, and also in the question of evil in the self. That is, yeah, you know, that's one of his statements. Often that is a part of his theory that there is something evil in God or even in evil in the self, but at other times, surprisingly, at the end of his life, you know, in his biography, not biography, but. In the biography written by Angela yaffe's secretary, mm. he suddenly starts to speak about love as a summon burnum and so love as something that's outside of this category or this diversion of opposition between good and evil. So he was he was not reconciled, I think, yeah, until the yeah. end. Or maybe he was at the end. Who knows?
0: Maybe, yeah, interesting because mm-hmm. John Sanchard points that out that there isn't a sort of a coherence in, in Jung in no. this in this whole area. So there is some yeah, it's not clear, or it's uh, it's easy to be it's easy to be confused. It's easy easy to be confused, but I think Kunkel would be much nearer the idea of evil being the absence of good. Yeah, and not so critical of it as as Jung was. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. it's almost like evil evil needs something to work through. Yeah, I mean there might well be an independent. Um, we call it the demonic, you know, the demonic aspect, the demonic realm. i I haven't read Kunkel say too too much about that, but he certainly says that the sort of the uh, the pathway to channeling evil into the world is through the ego. And so therefore, it's yeah. it's very, very important to, yeah, to understand that and to overcome
1: it. To say that the ego is evil, I, I understand that, and I also know that he differentiates and he, he speaks about egocentricity and different mm-hmm. aspects of the ego. But it's kind of, you know, because in a sense, he's also showing the great potential of the ego No, Like mm-hmm. this is hard work, you know, to to go through the process that he's describing of starting to possibly viewing life from this we perspective or from a different... Yeah, conversion is it's a lot of hard work also for the ego, let's say, I, I would say, but like I have had another person on the podcast, Donald Corves. I don't know if you've seen that. Very interesting conversation. He's a psychoanalyst, a very old mm-hmm. classical Freudian, but he's also a you know, Christian. When He speaks about the superego as the evil aspect of the ego. He says that the superego, that's evil. That's, he says that clearly, that's where I see evil. But we shouldn't mix up the superego, for example, with the... Like stay with the voice of God, or there's different voices, but one voice within us he would identify as evil would be this super egoish voice that shows our false morals or, you know, but in the end, it's a killer. It wants to kill things. Again, I don't want to simplify, but just to say that the ego, in my view, has, has a lot of positive traits that probably is needed for for, for human development. And I find also in I'm working quite well with, with the Jungian discourse. What I like with Kunken, and I think Sanford says this, and you also pointed to this, is that he sort of brings to life, he has a Freudian view. He definitely put a lot of emphasis on the importance, I think, of childhood mm-hmm. um, and of the childhood as a part of our psychological development, and that that's maybe where egocentricity is being formed or or developed, if, if I'm right. But I don't know if mm-hmm. he's using Freudian concepts besides that when it comes to his theory building.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't. Yeah, I, I know that he thought that the great contribution of Freud was the dis, I say discovery of the unconscious, and what what therefore you know is repressed in the unconscious sublimation. There's tremendous power when it's released. So I know that he he was yeah he. But I think I think Kunkel thought that Freud possibly overemphasized yeah the 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 libido and and that aspect he kind of amplified it to, to 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 obscure other other things and and then getting into a more kind of materialistic and therefore deterministic reduction reductionist kind of you know like religion is nothing but yep. projection of the father figure for example but i i think that he he yeah he 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 greatly saw the contribution of freud as as yeah helping us to think about the unconscious and what is repressed within it, having great power, you know, and needs to be sort of un un
1: unlocked. But isn't he also talking about the what creates egocentricity? Isn't Kunke also pointing us to childhood and, and, and yeah. the individual's development as a, as yeah, a I think how he do ta- we create egocentricity?
0: Yeah, yeah. I think he talks about sort of the, 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 the child or you know the, the baby being born and there's quite a state of innocence, you could say. But at some point, quite soon after birth, he calls it the breach of we. The we is breached. (laughs) And that's because your parents possibly are quite, even though they might be very good in many respects, there will be some egocentricity there. And if not within the family, then certainly within the world, you know, in society. So he talks about the breach, the breach of we, certainly. And then he talks about as well, he calls them white giants and black giants. But yeah, in terms of of childhood, that we have people who will look after us and people who won't look after us, you know, and so we have to understand what our white giants and our black giants are in order to withdraw our projections, you know, and to see people as people, flawed, you know, mixed, not either black or white. So he does talk about that in relation to childhood, which I think really, yeah, really helpful and, and really interesting.
1: Mm. So the development of egocentricity is through. Uh, it's just, um, yeah, it's yeah. obviously nothing that we're born with. It's something that happens through. Yeah,
0: it happens very quickly. It happens very quickly. I don't think young, uh, sorry, Kunkel would be very accepting of the idea of original sin, in that sense. Maybe in the sense of we do inherit things that come from the sins of our fathers and mothers. So maybe there is a, yeah, there is a sort of being born into the state of sin, as it were. But I know that he addressed the question of, you know, suffering and where does it come from? I think it, it's reflected in the quote that I shared there about the cross. It doesn't really matter where it comes from <laughs> because it is a fact, as it were, and there is a way through. And our egocentricity can be overcome as we choose to, yeah, learn from the experience of the doghouse. Mm-hmm. And then we can emerge. And I think in terms of the the emerging and I totally hear what you're saying about the ego, because I think what Kunkel is talking about, and perhaps he doesn't differentiate enough, I'm not sure, but it's the breakdown of the ego defences, mm. so that when your ego is free of that kind of wall that's built around it in terms of the ego defence, then there is the right, a right relationship between the ego and the self, and the mm. ego is obviously expressed through the self into the world, rather than as a kind of encapsulated Thing that is just only wanting to maintain its own position. So I think it's the breakdown of egocentricity that is key, and egocentricity is the evil, rather than the ego itself. So maybe that helps to understand that um, Mm. what we want is a right relationship between the ego and the self, not an eradication of the ego. Right.
1: Yeah.
0: And so and so it's the egocentricity that we need and our patterns and our you know what what, it's that that we need to i say get rid of but it's that that we need to to overcome so that there can be a a right relationship with the self and the ego is expressed through the self into the world because we kind of need the strength of the ego to do that you know what i mean but i think in overcoming our egocentricity what we're doing is we're overcoming our kind of an our ideal image that which we want to project into the world (laughs) i just mean because our ideal image will have the corresponding fear and so what you fear greatly comes upon you is kind of a principle isn't it in a way and that's 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 broken down within the kunkul process i think
1: Jung speaks about the ego self-access in, in this regard, like in the importance of finding the, yeah, we'll say just the simplicity, the balance between the two. I think that's, that's really helpful how you fleshed that out So, bit. I wanted to ask you also now, like at the end here, what about Kunke? Why, why did he disappear or disappear? <laughs> he didn't. Then I mean, we are talking about him. And, and you have a handful of people that you're in contact with. and. But we have the giants, Freud and, you know, also Adler and Jung, you know, they, they continue to the schools and institutes and, and whatnot. And to me, when I read Kunkil, I'm like, OK, it just seems like there was again, so much potential there. There's so much. Here. It seems like the world should be ripe for something like this. But what happened? Yeah? Yeah. Why did he disappear?
0: Well, I know John Sanford talks a little bit about this in some of his writings, and I agree with him about it. And I think I think. There's a couple of things. I think essentially Kunkel is a religious psychologist. And religion certainly within Freud, Adler and Jung, they were not religious in that sense, you know, in the sense of a transcendent God, in the sense of a theist, in in the sense of understanding that or believing that Christianity was kind of the highest expression of spiritual evolution. That would be a kind of Kunkel <laughs> a Kunkel kind of way of putting it. So I think, yeah, religious psychology, you know, in the time of Freud, Adler and Jung, there was, it was much more kind of scientific age, particularly Freud. I mean, particularly Freud. Yeah, I think it was more materialistic. I think Jung did some things to kind of access and understand the spiritual aspect a bit more. But I think it's a bit limited, yeah, in, in the sense of, yeah, a religious psychology as it's been understood and cast by by Kunkel so I think yeah there's that and there's also I think the message of Kunkel is that you know the evil of the ego is not a very popular message um, there's a lot in our culture and in our lives that rest on our ego and to give it up and to go through the suffering that that entails you know might not be a very appealing thing for for people you know so I think there's yeah and and he did die unexpectedly early so maybe there would have been more that would have been done and established if, yeah, if if he had lived lived longer. But also I think the other thing that I would add is that, you know, he didn't write for the academy and he didn't write for academics. He wrote for ordinary people, really. And maybe there's something around the fact that his ideas are not sort of out there in terms of training, university, academy, you know what I mean? And so he didn't really sort of speak to that audience he when he was lecturing and sharing his ideas it was to lay people and people interested in the religious life Mm. particularly so and 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 again perhaps there's something there's something around around that as well I would also say in reflecting of like maybe the world is now ready for Kunkel I, I would just say that you know Jordan Peterson with his biblical lectures I think he's done a yeah a Great job in getting millions of people interested in a psychological interpretation of the Bible, and that's exactly what Kunkel sought to do as well. So, I think perhaps there's kind of groundwork that's been done through, through Jordan Peterson's work in, in that sense. And
1: he is a Jungian psychologist. Well, he's interested in Jung at least, I mean, and he's, he's not, interested he, he, in he It's not, not a Jungian psychologist, but yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's, he, yeah. He's, he's, he's very knowledgeable about Jung, that's for sure. And yeah. I, I think he, yeah. I agree with you. He too. It's an amazing contribution. Yeah,
0: yeah. And it's very yeah. important.
1: And I meet many people who through his interpretations have come in contact with your and with Christianity. So
0: mm. yeah,
1: he's like a so
0: he's bridging, he's being a bit of a bridge. Bridging.
1: Exactly. He's a, yeah. exactly.
0: and I think that could be very helpful now for, for
1: think people so to understand. I'm still interested in in you know, this disappearance of his ideas or like him from the scene. Like Jung and Freud and others, I mean, they had such uh, strong followers. And they also developed techniques around how to do psychotherapy, mechanical if you call it, techniques. But they had different settings. They created a system of analysis and analysts and such. And I mean, you know, obviously there's not what I know of any conciliarians out there. Or is it possible to go to conciliarian Kuntler- oh. therapy? No,
0: My brother's a therapist and he's been reading Kunkel and he's been integrating some of Kunkel's ideas and Viva. he says it's just incredible, some of the reactions and some of the, I said to him, you really need to write some case studies as you do this because, you know, it's, it's, yeah. So I know my brother and I know Timothy Locke in, in, in a, is, is a
1: practicing psychologist. And, but at around the time when I mean, he was practicing, there was no, and I had a sense, no one who wanted to sort of pick it up or he didn't have followers in that way.
0: It's interesting that it's it's an interesting question because those who did interact with him and know him a bit, like Sanford and Johnson, kind of pitched their tent really around Jung, and sort of, I don't know, allowed their their well, particularly with not so much with Johnson, but particularly with Sanford, uh, that you know, uh, the difference coexisted. You know what I mean in terms of what I've been trying to express about the religious aspect because John John Sanford was clearly yeah a Christian and understood God in a particular way that was different to Jung, but the the way that he understood Jungian psychology was very much that there was no dogmas and that you could believe all sorts of things that didn't necessarily agree with Jung, so he's you know what I mean he is known as a Jungian not a a Kung-Klian. and yes. i and i if that's such a word, I don't know but and also the other thing to say is that I suppose. Kunkor didn't didn't seek to set up a school he wanted to integrate the insights of all the others and then he came out with quite a unique um, aspect which is we psychology and the emphasis on the ego but he never sought to establish a school of psychology so maybe as well as i'm talking to you i'm just thinking this that maybe that's maybe that's an aspect it was never it was never really an intention
1: I'm also wondering about his charisma. I don't know how he was as a person. We know Jung and Freud. Uh, yes. well, are Maybe
0: he wasn't egotistical.
1: I don't know. And or charismatic, that... egotistical. I don't know. But like, do we know I something know. about how he was as a, as a, as a person? Stepping into a room, was he a person that drew attention to him? Was he more of an introvert? We don't really know much about his... Uh, I don't know so much.
0: I know that he was kind and didn't like to say no. And that he had a very good sense of humour. Yeah, those are the things that I picked up from yeah. Samford and Johnson. There's
1: not many photos of him,
0: no? No, there are not, no. no, Not that I've seen. Not that I've seen, unless they're seen buried one. in an archive. I've yeah. only got that one.
1: <laughs> only that one? Yeah,
0: yeah. He looks like, to me, you know, it's funny because I joke with some of my friends, we think he looks like an uncle, a kindly uncle. So we used to say, let's ask Uncle Kunkel as a kind of a I don't know sort of a thing to say it was like our inner image of him was a kindly a kindly uncle that you might like to talk to and who might give you some good advice i'm sure i don't i don't get the sense that he was a particular extrovert or you know and maybe he didn't have that ego drive that would sort of you know establish you right out there i don't know
1: yeah 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 no, no, no. And this, yeah. I'm a little bit curious about the handful of people that you're meeting with, or like your conversation around Kunkel. Mm-hmm. I mean, did you say something more? I mean, would there be a conference one day about Kunkel? Will you do something? Well, I think
0: so. I am thinking about that. No, that's a very good idea. I think I need a bit of encouragement to do that. So perhaps I can talk to you a bit further because it would be lovely to convene something. I mean, I do have a, a sort of, yeah, sort of ideas about that, even just to meet each other and say, how did you? come across wow. and you know how does he help you kind of thing I mean it would just be wonderful actually to to share to share with people who have an interest in him yeah I think that's an excellent well I hope that we did a little
1: contribution oh in, thank today you and yeah I'm thank really you very much I found you and I'm really glad in the way that you shared and yeah opened up a better understanding of this man and his ideas and yeah and their relevance for, for our time because mm. I agree with you and I, I think there's a good future for this so I hope yeah. to to continue this conversation somehow.
0: That's wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm really pleased for the opportunity to um, be able to share.